Turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, will be our focus this morning as we study God's Word. We are still in the introduction that Paul has for the Colossian believers and for us today, Uh, but don't let the words introduction or introductory comments or salutation uh, lessen in any way the full impact of these authoritative words to us in God's Word. In fact, we learn from from Paul's expression here what God's will is. Remember, Paul is an apostle. That is, he's a prophet of God, speaking on behalf of God by God's power. And so even an introduction from the apostle merits our intense study. And so we are still looking at these powerful, powerful words of the apostle Paul in the opening verses of Colossians 1. Hear now God's word, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these powerful words. Lord, thank you for what they mean to us, your desire for us to grow in these areas, to reflect our new citizenship. We are under King Jesus, and I pray, Lord, that we would live as our King would have us live, as he has purchased for us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let not one of us leave here unchanged. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Citizenship is constantly in the news, is it not? Especially these days. Always talking about citizenship in America with people coming in, immigrating, coming in legally, illegally, and all the discussion about it. Citizenship is constantly a discussion. And really at its core, uh, beyond all the rhetoric, is the issue of privilege and what one gains by being a citizen. Well, this is true for sure in the Roman Empire. To be a citizen of Rome was a privileged status. You, you had much in the way of benefits being a citizen. Everyone was a subject to the kingdom of Rome, but only some were citizens in Rome. And for the one who is a citizen, life, quite frankly, was just a bit easier. Now, it's in, against that backdrop that Paul is writing to the Colossians, talking about citizenship, something, a concept they would be aware of. Only he is turning it so that they understand what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom, that King Jesus is their personal king. He's the king over the whole earth, but his citizens are the ones personally called by him into a saving relationship with himself. Paul uses the imagery of citizenship to explain the privilege of being in Christ's kingdom. But also, he uses the imagery of citizenship to encourage us to reflect our king as well. And that's really how these verses break down. If you look at verse 13, we see clearly, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is God's desire for us to grow, to reflect our new citizenship in Christ's kingdom. That's what he's getting at in these verses. And these verses, the verses that precede this grand statement, 
are based on new citizenship. In other words, when he tells us, Paul that is, that his desires are for us to grow, to be filled with the knowledge of his will in holiness, in spiritual power, in thanks, he's telling us that in light of the fact that you're now citizens of Christ. You can do these things because of who you now are. It's not telling you, go do these things, everybody. Come on, get tough. You can do it. And then just go out and do it. He's saying, you can do this because of what God has done. That's the whole point, what Paul is saying here in these opening verses. Now, as I say, Paul, desiring for the Colossian believers these things, please understand what this means. Paul's an apostle writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration, God breathed. That means God uses a human author, like Paul, keeping intact his personality, his intellect, his unique experience, but commandeering it in such a way that he can communicate his absolute truth through this individual without error on the pages of Scripture. So what Paul says here is not just Paul's desire as an apostle for people he loves. It's God's desire for the church. When Paul prays these things, we can know that's what God desires for us as well. With that in mind, let us consider how then God desires us to grow to reflect our new citizenship. He desires us to grow first and foremost, I would even say, in the knowledge of his will. In the knowledge of his will. Look at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is a reference back to verse 3 and 4. Speaking of this regular, habitual, disciplined prayer that Paul has for the Colossian church. We have not ceased to pray for you. And you remember last week, what are the two things that Paul prayed for the Colossian believers? He prayed thanking God for their faith in Christ that God had given them. But he also prayed thanking God for the way they loved each other as believers. Now he's going to add to that prayer the content of his prayer. In addition to that, we see that he is praying that these people, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now this verse, let's look at it particularly. All spiritual wisdom and understanding is a reference to the knowledge of his will. That we gain the knowledge of his will and then with wisdom and understanding, which is spiritual from God, we come to understand, interact, and know how to live according to his will. What is it? Referring to here, we say being filled with the knowledge of his will. Let's say what it is not. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will is not first knowing what God wants me to do with my life, what God's will is for my life, what decisions to make. That is not the knowledge of God's will in view here. That is an offshoot of knowing God's will. In other words, as you come to know God and his economy, his actions, his activity, his redemptive plan, his scheme, if you will, his workings, which is revealed by his revealed will the word of god as you come to know the word of god you come to know god you come to know the you come to a fuller understanding of his will now once you know who god is as you search that out then the questions that plague us what do we do for a job who do we marry uh, what do we do with this relational situation where should i go to college what should i do with this situation that's confronting me at school the teacher said this what do i do with that that is what is god's will in relation to that well check this and as you study this, you'll come to understand how to make decisions in life. Making decisions in life is not discerning God's will as such. Studying God's word helps you make decisions which are in line with God's will. Coming to a full understanding of the knowledge of God's will has to do with knowing what he's revealed about himself. Now, someone might say simply, and I appreciate this thought, but I just want to know Jesus. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. I agree. But the only way you can know Jesus is if God reveals him to us. And he has done just that with the Bible. Any other Jesus isn't Jesus, but the 
Jesus of the Bible. So to know Jesus is to know his word, to know what he reveals about himself. So we study his word, and we come to be filled with the knowledge of his will. We come to know God when we come to know the scriptures. So please understand what Paul is saying here, and he says it in many other ways in many other places, that the basis for knowing God comes from what God reveals about himself in the scripture, supernaturally by the Spirit. This is the bedrock. This is the beginning of everything else that falls out in the rest of the book of Colossians, is knowing and being filled with the knowledge of his will. And my brothers and my sisters, it only happens one way. You've got to pick it up and you've got to read it. It doesn't happen any other way. It doesn't sit there and osmosisly come through to your head. It doesn't happen that way. And I think many of us need to just simply pick it up. Uh, put down the mouse and pick up the Bible. That's what we need to do. And start studying it. You know, I mean, I've got to admit, I mean, the first thing I click on to every morning is whatifsports.com. I'm in this habit of comparing one of the 26 ch world championship Yankee teams with whoever else they play. Who would win? And whatifsports.com usually gives the right answer. Usually. But why do I click that first instead of picking up my scripture? And if you think for a moment, if you think for a moment that coming to church on Sunday morning will fill you with the knowledge of God's will, let me put it to you this way. If I told you I'm going to start eating healthy, one day a week I'm going to eat a salad for lunch, I'm going to have fruit in the morning, salad for lunch, more fruit at night. I told you one day a week, now I'm healthy. You know I'm not healthy. In fact, to be more careful in the analogy, if I were to tell you I'm going to eat a salad in the morning and that's it, one day a week, would you say that I'm eating healthy? If you're telling me that you come to church and hear one sermon and you are filled with the knowledge of God's will, I'm telling you, you are kidding yourself. You are not filled with the knowledge of God's will. You're filled with the knowledge of whatever you're spending the most time and affection towards. And if we're honest, a lot of times it's whatifsports.com instead of our scripture or fill in the blank for you. Okay? Being honest with one another. To be filled with the knowledge of his will means constant and consistent exposure to the word of God. And brothers and sisters, I don't mean making it a theological hobby game where we just decide what theological position we're going to have and debate it. That's not getting to know scripture. That's not getting to know Jesus. That you could do that with any form of literature. I'm talking about studying it to know Jesus, our king. Because he says, this is how I reveal myself. I'm also not referring to what many Christians do. And they set up their Bible like a Christian Ouija board. What should I do, God? Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of the Jordan against the perennial pasture. That's exactly what I came. And people, you laugh, but people read their Bible that way. When they get in crisis or when they need an answer, they pick up their Bible and kind of look through it. Or they'll look in the, in, in, the, in the back and see what the concordance says. And they'll, and they'll, okay, that's not how we come to understand what God has for us. It's, it's constantly building a relationship with the Lord based on what he reveals about himself in his scripture. And it's constant. It's life. It never ends. I've studied. I actually translated the whole book of Colossians when I was in, in, uh, in Bible college as a Greek major. And I went through it once. I taught it. And now I'm preaching through it. And new, new reality comes clear to me as I study it. It's a living book. It never stopped. I didn't get the end of it and know it. I got to the end of it and know him better. And then I go through it again and get to know him better. And then I go through it again and I know him better. And it never, ever ends. You've never come to the end of it. To be filled with the knowledge of his will, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's the beginning of all true knowledge. These are newer, newer believers, but it's true for all of us. We consistently have to have our world and life rocked by Scripture, integrated by what God says is real. And brothers and sisters, what I'm about to say is very countercultural. We have bought into the idea that knowledge 
takes different forms. In other words, there's knowledge about my profession, knowledge about some academic subject or science, and knowledge about this hobby. And we have these little circles that orbit around. And we like to say God's in the middle and they orbit around. And we think that's a spiritual outlook. It may be, but it's not a biblical outlook. A biblical outlook includes the whole sphere, everything God is sovereign over, and it's all in there. So for knowledge to be true knowledge, it has to, in, it has to have in view God and his dominion over all things, whether it's math, science, arts, our understanding of who God is. It's all based and defined by what God says. That's being filled with knowledge. So it's not just talking about studying Scripture, but then how Scripture helps us have the correct lens to interpret everything else around us. I think this is of utmost importance as we raise our children. We, have, we want our children to be knowledgeable. Every one of us here, if I ask you, you want your child to be knowledgeable. But please, brother and sis, brother or sister, make sure that what you mean by knowledge is what God says knowledge is for your child. God says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Later in Psalm 110, verse, or 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. By definition, the only true knowledge is knowledge according to God. That is that our children, and I, I say this, I point this out because my big dream for all of us, I think it's God's dream for us, if you will, is that we would be transformers of culture as a church. And that happens at the basic level of our children thinking with an integrated world and life view. They know what the Bible says and how it applies to every issue. When they see CNN, they see the issue and they recognize what happens, but they're able also to interpret it in light of God's greater plan for the universe. And that's a different way of thinking. And you've got to admit, most of us weren't raised that way. And so as we raise a new generation, we have to do it in a holistic, integrated way, constantly showing them that knowledge, true knowledge, is God's knowledge. And we have to be careful to resist the idea that this is knowledge over here, and this is religion over here. That's a deadly thing that has neutralized the church's effectiveness in the, in the world. I'll be even more blunt with you, pastorally blunt. We must be careful. Whatever your choice of how you formally educate your child, you've got to be aware of the fact that we will constantly be bombarded with this dichotomy between knowledge and religion. And that is a dangerous thing. Make sure that your child does not buy into that. That they're filled with the knowledge of God's will from the youngest age. And that we recognize, especially in our world today, if a child gets a secular education... They'll receive 9,000 hours of school that effectively does its best to keep God over here or out altogether, and this is what knowledge is. So 9,000 hours, they're seeing things in a dichotomistic sense. It's very typical for that person, then, to have an integrated world and life view, as God would have us have, if they're getting inundated with that all the time. So you've got to take major steps to make sure, however that is, that they are realizing and understanding that what the science teacher just taught here has to be subject to what God reveals in his word. And the same is true for history, for math, for every subject. God's a Lord over it all. And we have to see that from the earliest stages of our life in development and discipleship. This is part of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. And I say this so forcefully because there's a one-shot chance with kids who have brains like sponges to make them think in those terms where it's so tough for you and I to realign our thinking. It's not so tough for them to think in those integrated terms from the youngest age. We can't miss this opportunity. I would be amiss pastorally not to say it. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will means one thing for me, but it can mean something different as we do it in an early age with children. I love what one Dutch theologian says. The truths of creation must be taught and learned in the light of the Holy Scripture and in their relationship to Christ. The Lord our God is one Lord. 
He is Lord over all, Lord over every sphere of life. His precepts cannot be excluded from any sphere. All our education must be permeated with the precepts of the Lord. Further, one writes, religion must not be something added to our life. It must be the heart of our life. Religion must not be something added to our education. It must be the basis from which our entire education must proceed. So I say this on the level of a small child, and I say it to us today, brothers and sisters, as adults, that we have to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And clearly, that means a knowledge of his revealed will, the scripture, which will help guide and direct us through every decision we make. The first petition of Paul is a foundational, basic desire of God for us, that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And God is so gracious that he has not revealed absolutely everything there is to know about God. We'd be overwhelmed. We could not take it. But he gives us just what we need for faith and life revealed to us in the scripture then comes the next desire that flows naturally out of this first desire god has for us in growth that we would grow in holiness look at verse 10 first last part of verse 9 do verse 10 that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god do you see these uh, three synonyms, if you will, to holiness? Holiness literally means to be set apart, uh, to uh, be separate in the sense of distinctive in one's actions or demeanor. Verse 10 says to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's holiness, a manner worthy of the Lord, walking, a way of life, fully pleasing to him. Another wonderful description of holiness, to live in a, in a way that's pleasing to God. Thirdly, another synonymous term, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You then see the circular a part of the knowledge of God coming back into play. So what is it that God desires for us? That we would be holy, that we would reflect his holiness to the watching world to bring him glory. This is a common theme in Paul's writing and his pastoral desire for the people he writes to. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the by, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Writing later to the Thessalonians, he says this, My brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Listen, instead of me giving you a bunch of ways in which to be holy, and I know, brothers and sisters, that can be, that can be discouraging. When a pastor just tells you, come on, everybody, we've got to be more holy. You've got to be holy. Go be holy. Come on, we're not being holy enough. It doesn't help me personally any more than, than me saying it would help you. I understand that. Let's think in a different term, though, instead of avoiding what God desires for us. Think of it in a much more positive light, which is the way I think Paul is saying it. God has done this great thing in our lives. He saved us. Not only has he saved us, he's made us citizens of his own son's kingdom. Therefore, we can reflect him. Now, in that light, let us do things that please God. In other words, we're secure in who we are as citizens. God's done this great thing. Now, let's do things that please our father, that please our king, Jesus. Instead of saying, be more holy, let's say this. Let's analyze every aspect of our life and ask, how does this please the Lord? How did my conversation with my boss please the Lord? 
How did my conversation with my wife or my husband please the Lord? How is my interaction with my children pleasing the Lord? Uh, how are my choices with what I eat pleasing the Lord? How are my choices with which I, what I view on the internet pleasing the Lord? Uh, what are, and just fill in the blank of all the things, knowing full well God's not rejecting you. He's made you a citizen. So now the response of holiness is really a reaction to how we can please the one who's loved us and loved us tangibly in his son. God desires us to grow in holiness, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So often, at least for me personally, and I suspect you struggle with it also, I really live my life pleasing myself. Now, it can look all right on the outside. There's ways in which I can make it look like it's more for others. But in the end, I'm making choices or doing things that ultimately they, they give me pleasure or they please me. Instead, let's have a focus that asks first the question, how does this please God? That's how we grow in holiness, by asking and answering that question on a consistent, regular basis. And you'll ask and answer the question your whole life. It won't be a one-time decision. Constantly, you're gonna be, you will be faced with that question, with that choice. How will this thing or that thing, this relationship or this action or this behavior, how will this please God who has saved me by his son's blood? God desires us to grow in the knowledge of his will, but also in holiness, that his will reveals to us his word. But also, verse 11, God desires us to grow in spiritual power. Look at verse 10 as it, leads, it gives us the context for verse 11. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul knows full well you will need power to walk in a holy way. You will need power to fulfill God's word. It doesn't say get stronger, exercise, and then you'll be able to, or practice this, and then you'll be able to. Sure, practice and exercise are ways in which you enhance a gift that is given. And that's what it is. It's a spiritual gift. Really, that's what this is talking about. A spiritual gift is what spiritual power is, something given to you supernaturally by God. May you be strengthened with all power, which is spiritual. Why do I know it's spiritual? Because it's according to his glorious might. God has vast, endless wells of power, and he gives from his power the ability for you to hold up under what he has given for us to do, to hold up under enduring trials and tribulations. May you be strengthened with all power, that you would grow in this power, in this supernatural ability to do what God tells us to do, to uphold his name, even the most difficult circumstances. You know, really at the root of this, it's humbling, is the fact that we lack power on our own. None of us really like to be told that. None of us really like the idea that we don't have an ability in and of ourselves. We like to think that we can muster it. And what's being revealed here and in other places is that we don't have that natural ability. It's utterly, totally dependent upon God. Not only are we redeemed by grace, we're sustained daily and regularly by grace. And so we are faced with a humbling reality that we need God's power to live this life. Really, honestly, how a person handles the frailty of humanness really reveals their spiritual health, where they are in the Lord. Uh, when we have a hardship that confronts us, uh, based on how we're filled with the knowledge of his will, will often determine how we react. And there's two basic reactions that are most common. One, when hardship arises or trial or, or an unanswerable question come, is that we go into total despair or we go into total, total depression over the issue and shut down. 
The other side that I see often is we go into denial or diversion. They're the same thing. Diversion might be you fill yourself with busyness so that you don't think about whatever it is. So, which is really denying a reality that there's a hardship confronting. Whatever it may be, you may have brought it on or maybe something that's been put on you. But we either are depressed or in denial and neither way can we please God by our actions. We're too busy doing something else or we're just locked down in depressed mode. We need spiritual power to rise up above this. Nothing else will work. I can't give you any psychobabble that'll help you. Five things to think about or recite or a creed or an oath that you can say every day to help you. Those may have some merit some way, but I'm telling you ultimately it's spiritual power and spiritual power alone that lifts us up in times of trial and difficulty and struggle and temptation. It ultimately, honestly, has to be God ripping certain stuff out of our life. I mean, he has to do it. I mean, I'm sure every one of you can think of one, at least one besetting sin you battled that you keep having to battle. And you just got to ask God, Lord, rip it out of my life. Give me power to say no to this. Because I can't. There's nothing I can do. God, you must give me power for this. May I be strengthened with all power according to your might for endurance and patience with joy. This is God's desire for us as Paul prays and reveals. But look also, one simple phrase in verse 12, we learn also God desires us to grow in thankfulness. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 12, the first portion, give thanks to the Father. So in addition to being filled with the knowledge of his will, in addition to holiness, in addition to spiritual power that helps us endure with patience and joy, hardships that are created by us or put upon us. In addition to this, it's always, always, always in the demeanor of thankfulness and gratefulness to God for saving us. That, that's what it's all based on, brothers and sisters. Some time ago, my mentor and friend, Pastor Ben Robinson, challenged me when I first started, as I became a believer and started to pray. All my prayers as a new believer were focused upon God helping me with these various things. That's fine. God tells us to bring petitions to him. But he very lovingly said to me once, let's just start this in our own practice that we would just pray thanking God before we would ask him for anything. I know many people probably follow the discipline of acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication when you pray. That's great. But I prefer tack. Thankfulness first. And the reason why I would suggest you try this. In fact, here's my challenge. Every day this week when you pray, pray first thanking God for something. Then pray. Every day this week. Just try it for a week. And I, I tell you this because it's personally revolutionized my own way of looking at God. I start with a basis of thanks and gratefulness for everything, which leads me to adore him for his great sovereign mercy towards me, which then leads me to have to confess because in front of, he saved me, and it's definitely not because I'm holy, and I'm overwhelmed with his holiness, and God, I am not holy. I have to just simply say and confess to you I'm not, and I've sinned. And then I conclude my prayer with asking him for things that are according to his will. But try starting with thanks first. I think it'll change the way you think. And I know for me, I think this is true of humanity, but I won't oppose it on you. For me, thankfulness is the farthest thing from my natural activity. I really don't often operate with true thanks. Now, I learned from my mama to say thanks, please, and thank you. But just because I say thank you doesn't mean I'm really thankful. This is something, again, that God gives. A full realization of what we've been saved from is the beginning. It's the basis for understanding how to have a demeanor of thankfulness to God. It makes all the difference when you receive things from God, from others, from God through others. However, it will start to resonate in your soul 
that it's all grace. It's all from God. Every bit of it's grace. Undeserved favor given to someone who deserves only wrath. Grace. Giving thanks to the Father. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Brothers and sisters, start all your prayers this week, starting today, right after you get home and you're ready to eat and you pray before you eat. Thank God. Thank God first. Thank the Lord for your family. Thank the Lord for giving you air in your lungs to breathe. Thank the Lord for your church. Thank the Lord for this country that you are part of. Thank the Lord for those people that you pass that you don't know, but thank the, thank the Lord for those people that he's given you a community to be part of, to reach out to and be part of. Thank the Lord for your brother, for your sister. Thank the Lord for your parents. Thank the Lord for what he's blessed us with, for this building, for these hymnals to sing out of, for the sacraments of grace. Thank the Lord for exposure to the word. Thank the Lord for the persecuted church bearing up under all that they're bearing up under. Thank the Lord for this place we have, this country we have, this county we have, this place. You just name it. You can't stop thanking God for everything when you really start analyzing what we should be thankful about. All of this will reflect to a watching world our new citizenship in Christ's kingdom. The basis for our spiritual growth, all of which I've just spoken of as God's desire for us, the basis for this is revealed for us in verses 12 through 14. This, I would tell you, brothers and sisters, is the basis for all living what is contained in these three verses. The basis for our spiritual growth is the redeeming and sustaining grace of God. Not how hard you work, not how diligent you are, how disciplined you become. It's based on the sustaining and redeeming grace of God. Starting with verse 12, we see how we reflect our new citizenship in Christ's kingdom. How is it done? Well, first, God has given us a share of an inheritance. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Please notice the particular wording because it matters. He has qualified you. Please note it does not say, congratulations, you have qualified. It does not say this. It says it nowhere in scripture. We don't qualify. He has qualified us based on nothing we have done. In fact, why do I say this? That's a leap. Aren't you making it? Well, look at the next ver- word, to share in the inheritance. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is not something in its purest definition that you earn. Inheritance is by virtue of a birth you had no say over, born into a family you did not choose. That's what inheritance is. You get something, not because of anything you've done, but because of who you've been born into. That's what the purest definition of inheritance is. And so we've been qualified by God to share in an inheritance. Utterly, there is no room for someone to say, because you did all these things, you are now qualified to share in the inheritance. Rather, the opposite is true. Because you've qualified in the inheritance, therefore you can grow in the knowledge of his will. Therefore you can live a life that's pleasing to him. Therefore you can be strengthened with spiritual power. Therefore you can have a thankful demeanor, all because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance, the saints of light. In light, And he's not just called you as an individual, he's called us as a people. He saved us as people and given us all an inheritance. We've only just begin, begun to taste the inheritance. The fellowship we have with one another that is supernatural is the beginning of the inheritance. The blessings we have poured out onto us this day and age, this life, 
is part of the inheritance believers have. But it's only the beginning of what awaits for us in eternity and in eternal existence to live out that inheritance of perfect relationship with God the Father through God the Son. He has given us a share of the inheritance, but also we see that God has transferred our citizenship to Christ's kingdom. And I want to be careful with this word. We've been transferred, just as the Bible says in verse 13. This is important. He has, in verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Please recognize that before coming to faith in Christ, you were not a faceless nomad looking for citizenship somewhere. You were a full-ranking member of the dominion of darkness. How does that feel? That's what the scripture says. We were citizens here. He's transferred you from that citizenship, that set of allegiances, from that place where your affections were. He has transferred you to this kingdom, which has now got a new set of affections, a new set of allegiance, and it's to King Jesus. It's a big difference. We've been transferred. You weren't just out there wandering, and then all of a sudden God saved you. You weren't just a good person that finally came to Christ. You were under the domain of darkness. That's a word for kingdom. And he transferred you. And please note, it does not say because you prayed the prayer or because you came forward or because you did this or you got qualified for. It says none of that. That's not grace. What's grace is that he's qualified you for this inheritance that you don't deserve. And then he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Brothers and sisters, if that is not motivation to live a different life, I've got no other answers for you. That's it. God has transferred our citizenship to Christ's kingdom. That's what he's done. Very simply, we've got to start acting like it. Act like the citizen we are of Christ's kingdom, not of the world anymore. That's the way God makes attractive, believe it or not, to the world, this kingdom. As people actually live like their king, people see that and see the difference and the eternal value of it. And that's what God uses to draw more into that kingdom. Not when the kingdom tries to look as much like the world without actually totally becoming it. That's not how we draw more people in. We draw more people in by honoring the king who is over the kingdom, which we are now citizens. And what's so beautiful about this is in verse 14. This is not a temporary citizenship that you might lose. This is in verse 14, purchased, secured permanently by God through Christ, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. So we've been given a share of the inheritance. We're transferred out of one citizenship into the other. And we're secured in our current citizenship because God has given his own son for the particular act of redemption. The particular act applied to the people of God who are given to the son by the father, perfectly paid for by the son and given back to the father, holy and blameless, not one is lost. God has permanently secured our citizenship in Christ's kingdom. We have redemption. We've been bought. We've been bought once and for all. And we have forgiveness for our sins. Praise God. I said we have forgiveness for our sins. Praise God. That means we're redeemed. That means we're secure. That means we can now begin to live out these things. And we fall down. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He lifts us up again. And he gives us more assurance of his grace. So we can go at it again. When God makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom, he secures that citizenship with the most sure of all possible deposits, the redeeming blood of his own son, we participate in communion not only because we're commanded to, but because it consistently reminds us in a tangible way of the, of the deposit made for our soul, the blood of Christ, that it's secure. No matter what your week was like, no matter what your relationships happen to be, as you strive after God's will, he gives us strength and he gives us victory because he secured it once and for all in his, in his son's own blood. 
These are the anchor points of a life lived for God, as a life lived as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. You know what I love about Paul among so many things? And of course, it's by God's grace that Paul is this way. And the words he speaks are particularly inspired by God himself. But the way Paul consistently uses what I call kind of the Pauline paradox of grace. It's not a true paradox, but hear what I'm saying. He says this over and over. God is at work sovereignly. Therefore, his people are at work. Do you follow what I'm saying? God is at work, therefore his people are at work. In other words, the reason why we can do these things is because God's at work. So the, the glory is always about what God is doing. But we're doing things, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying we sit on autopilot. We do things because God's at work. And if we're not doing things, if we're not working towards these things, the question is right to ask, has God's grace worked in our life? Have we come to that place of trust and reliance upon Christ for salvation on a regular basis? I don't mean just one time. I mean every day do you ask again the question, do I trust Christ solely for my salvation? Or am I trusting in something I've done, some alliance, some relationship? God is at work, therefore his people are at work. Because God has saved us by his grace through his own son, because God has made us citizens of Christ's kingdom, because God has secured us for eternity, we must reflect these realities by being filled with the knowledge of his will. We need to reflect these realities of our new citizenship by pursuing holiness. We must show our new allegiance by growing in spiritual power. We must, must show that we are subjects of King Jesus by our constant demeanor of thanks to God in all we do. God is at work, therefore his people are at work. These wonderful introductory comments are deep and profound and have effect on our lives and I hope we will begin to see that even today. It is God's desire for us to grow to reflect our new citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful epistle. We thank you for what it teaches us, how it guides and directs us. I pray, Lord, that we would be changed. I pray that we would start our prayers thanking you for all that you have done for us in Christ. I pray that this week we would consider our actions and just ask ourselves, bring to our minds this question, is my interaction with this person or with this thing or this decision, does it please you? Help us, Lord. Give us the power we need to uh, stand up under the temptations that beset us, the trials that confront us. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Just constantly thanking you for grace. Lord, even after 10,000 years, we'll still be singing your grace the same as when we first begun. Thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.